Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. A common cliche is that you will catch far more flies with honey than you will with vinegar. Now, I've never put this statement to a literal test. Didn't have time this past week to, to do a little experiment either. Maybe it would have been fun. There have been plenty of flies around. Am I right? But we know from thinking about this, without doing an experiment of this statement, we know it is true because why would a fly go to vinegar? Our grandmothers or some other wise individual that transmitted this information to us weren't wanting us to understand how you could catch flies. They were wanting us to understand that people are more likely to be drawn to us if we are kind, if we take care of them, if we do good things, and if we treat people harshly or we treat them poorly. And while you may never use this old line with anyone, you do know for sure that the principle is true. When we are harsh, With people, we usually find that we receive harsh treatment in return. And when we act in kindness and in a pleasant way, our treatment of others is reciprocated to us. So as we come back to this unfolding drama of the story of Joseph, we see that this man who was treated harshly by his brothers is using generosity with those brothers who treated him so poorly. And so we're going to jump into the passage that we've read for today right away. But before we do so, let's outline the story a little bit, divide it into three points so we can feel the progression through the text. The first thing we're going to look at is that we're reminded of the famine and the concern that this is for the family of Jacob. When we left off last week, it seemed as though Simeon was dead to Jacob because Jacob was refusing to send Benjamin into Egypt with his sons in order to prove that they weren't spies. But now we find that the famine creates a dilemma for the family. They need food, only Egypt has food, and only this mysterious governor of Egypt who is holding Simeon is the gatekeeper for more food. And so the circumstances within their family gets dire, and they are forced to go back to Egypt in hopes of saving their clan. In the second part of the story, we're going to see that the sons of Jacob are actually well-received by Joseph. They, they don't expect this. While Jacob was concerned with harm coming to Benjamin, we know the deeper workings of the story, and we know that Joseph would never bring harm to his brother Benjamin. And in the third section of the story, we see that Joseph gives a generous feast to his brothers. He not only shows interest in the welfare of Jacob, but he shows an intimate knowledge of his family. And so this causes the brothers to be amazed. And so, we arrive in this first section of the story, and and it is interesting to take a look at these details. As I've mentioned several times as we've been making our way through the story of Joseph, we know the general plot here. This is one, because we know it from Sunday school, we could give the general outline of the story very easily. But as we take the time each week to look at each chapter we're able to draw out some details that maybe you and I forgot from Sunday school 
Or maybe there's some details that we never really caught in the first place. And one of the things that we've been noticing is how Moses is continually trying to help us to understand the progression of time. And so we're seeing here a natural progression from chapter 43 last week where they had food, Joseph had Simeon, Jacob doesn't want to send Benjamin in, what's going to happen? So we're getting this idea of the progression of time. And as you've heard me say many, many times, in the original text of the Bible, there aren't chapter numbers and there aren't verses. But the break here in this text feels really natural, doesn't it? You can see why they put a chapter break here because Moses, once again, does this passage of time thing, doesn't he? The famine in the land was severe. We're reminded of the situation. It's almost like it was meant for us to take a break for a week to preach through it in multiple sermons. And the feeling that we're getting is that time has moved on. And even though Jacob seemed willing in what we read last week to let Simeon rot in Egypt because he didn't want to risk losing Benjamin, now time and the famine has caused this to change. And so we get the idea here that this famine is no joke. And this is the idea that the dreams of Pharaoh planted in our mind a few chapters back. And now we're seeing that this these extreme images of skinny cows eating fat cows and unhealthy skinny grain eating healthy fat ears of grain, those extreme images of those dreams of Pharaoh were warranted. This is serious business. This famine is no joke. Once again, we're reminded of the degree to which it extends beyond the borders of Egypt and it goes into Canaan. And that's where we know Jacob and his family are residing. And you have to kind of appreciate the way in which Jacob tells them to go get more food. Go, go and just buy us a little. Why don't you? Now my mind was immediately drawn to the idea of a kid who knows his parents won't allow him to have something, but they get a little desperate and they want it. And so they ask for just, can I have just a little bit? You know, we, we've all seen kids do that. They know the answer is no, but they start off asking for a little bit. That's what Jacob reminds me of here. And the reason I, I feel that that way is because there's no way that Jacob wasn't daily aware of the fact that they couldn't go get food. Simeon's gone. He's not among them. They would have not only missed his presence, where's Simeon, but you would think that they would have had to daily consider how are they going to care for the family of Simeon because he's gone. It's as though he has died. And when someone is missing from your family, it's something you do not easily forget. It's not something that you just pass off. It's something that is a daily reminder for you. And so Judah is the one we see here who reminds his father of this state of affairs. Hey, Dad, no Benjamin, no food. Benjamin is the key here. And we find Jacob thrusting the blame here in the direction of his sons. Why did you tell this guy in Egypt about your brother? And Judah says, hey, this guy was just asking questions and we answer them. How could we possibly know? Now as people, you and I, 
who are sitting over this story and having intimate knowledge of everything that's going on and all the angles here, you really kind of have to appreciate Joseph here, right? How he's played his knowledge of the family to his advantage. Simple questions that, that if you're in our position, seem like a giveaway of who he is. But not too obvious if you're the brothers and you think that this high-ranking Egyptian official, that there's no way he could possibly know your situation. There's no way you think that your brother could be a governor in Egypt. But we see this, that the situation is desperate here. And so Judah does some negotiating. He's looking to save himself. He's looking to save his entire family, actually. And not just his family, his brother's family and the life of his father. So he says, send Benjamin along. And, and the argument is, you can either risk Benjamin going with us to Egypt, or you can lose all of us to starvation. Those are your options, Dad. And once again, what we're meant to feel here is the gravity of all that's happening, all that's going on. Their backs are against the wall. Either Jacob allows this, or the whole family dies from his stubbornness. But Judah turns the knife here a little in verse 10. He says, you know, Dad, if you would have done something about this right away, we could have done this twice. We could have double the food if you just would have faced this to begin with. Now, this was likely not the first time that a man avoided a difficult or awkward situation. I'm guessing that it happened before this, and it's happened a lot since. But we see that this state of affairs is so dire that we see Jacob agreeing to let Benjamin go. But we see that he wants to catch a fly with honey, doesn't he? And he wants to get rid of any idea that they are, well, bringing Joseph vinegar. And because of the tension in the story, we get this move that Jacob is making. They came back with all their money in their sacks, and so we know what is going to happen when they go back. Again, we have all the details as we read the story, but, but settle in for a second and try to put yourself in the shoes of Jacob and in the shoes of his sons. This is a desperate state of affairs. They got their money back. Simeon is in custody there. They know what's pro- they, they think they know what's probably going to happen if they go back. But they need food. And the one place that they can get it, they have this serious thing that they need to address. Therefore, anything you can do to try, that you can do to try and make it seem as though you are grateful and generous and not thieves of money, right? You're gonna, you're gonna do. It's, it's gonna be something that's on the table for you. And so we see a list here of, of the stuff they're going to take along. Some of these gifts we don't know much about. But as we look at it, we know that some of this stuff is food. And so we might be a little confused here, right? If they have the fruits of the land, as it says here in the text, why are they trying to get food in Egypt? Well, it, it's likely that the food that they have was either harvested prior to the famine or it's food that grows in different conditions and hasn't been affected quite the same way as grain would have been during this famine. You know, there's just some food that grows in different conditions than others. But all of the items that are listed here 
were things that were considered to be important harvests of the land of Canaan. And they would have been considered by the Egyptians to be a more premium type of food. You know what this is like. You go see friends, you go see family in other, part of, other parts of the country, and maybe you bring along yourself some walleye, right? They don't get that over they are, and they think that's some pretty good fish right there. Or maybe you bring some local meat, right? And they don't have good meat like that where you go. And every time you go back to visit these folks, you have to stop off and get some steak before you go visit them, right? You know how this is. This is kind of the same thing. You bring the premium products from wherever you're, you're from to wherever you're going that they don't have. When you have that happen, you know people fall over the, all over themselves for the, for the good stuff, right? They like this. And the other thing about this being food, we also have no indication of just how big this gift is, what the size of it is. It is a famine after all. Any food that they would bring would probably be considered to be at a premium. I'm guessing they weren't bringing in truckloads of pistachios, right? Uh, Just transporting a significant amount of anything would have been a problem to take to Egypt. It's a long trip. They would have had to have more rations to have people carry all this stuff for them. This is probably a significant gift because of it being a good product, but it probably wasn't very much. Probably like you getting a small chocolate sampler box or something like that as opposed to, say, a wagon load of almonds and pistachios. And in addition to the food, there's something else that we see here. They're bringing the money back. They want to make sure that they understand, hey, this oversight happened, but we're going to give you the money. And so we finally see that Jacob concedes to send Benjamin. And here he says that his hope is that God will grant them mercy. And this is where we really get a sense of the gravity of the situation for this family here. In the previous chapter, he was concerned that the grief of losing another son would send him down to the grave, right? He thought losing Joseph and then Simeon and then losing Benjamin would cause him to go to Sheol. But now, the state of affairs is so bad that we look at what Jacob has to say, and he says, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. Their ability to survive here is clearly at risk. He is willing to give up his sons for this grain from Egypt. And imagine the gravity with which the sons of Jacob make this journey. There really isn't a sense of time passing here in this section. But it had to have been a substantial amount of time to travel there. And the whole time they're wondering, what's the outcome going to be when we get there? How is this Egyptian official going to treat, treat us? Is he going to, are we going to get there and he's going to enslave us? And then our children are going to starve in Canaan. Yeah. This would have been digging at them. And so when they arrive, Joseph sets up a meal and it's a significant meal. We read that they slaughter an animal. He's going to make this full meal. And you can understand why this must have been disconcerting to the brothers. I'm sure the brothers were wanting a nice, quick interaction. They explained the thing about the double money. Bring me my brother, Simeon. Here is Benjamin. Let's go. Nice, quick interaction. We would also like some more food. We're going to go back, make our father happy. They wanted to get in and get out. We'll be hitting the road. Thank you for all this stuff that we've had to do, but we've got family to feed. 
But instead, what are they told? They're going to be fed, which is a good thing, but they should be concerned. I bet they don't think that uh, too many people who come and ask for food are going to Joseph's house, well, or this Egyptian governor's house. They don't know it's Joseph. Feeding people, coming to get food, is not standard operating procedure. If you were in this situation, you'd be shaking in your boots like the brothers. And so to try and keep themselves from being made servants and having their donkey seized, they head over to the house. They speak with the steward of Joseph's house. They explain the situation. But look at what we see here. We see God mentioned. We really haven't had much of that with Jacob's brothers, have we? Talking about God and talking about how he interacts with them. But the steward of Joseph's house tells them that their God and the God of their father has put the treasure in the sacks for them. Now, you have to wonder how the brothers interpreted this. Why are you talking about our God? You're, you're an Egyptian who's the steward of the house of an Egyptian. What, what did the brothers think that this was all supposed to mean? But, but the important thing for us as we consider this passage is that what the steward has to say is true. God's hand was in all of this. God has ordained all of this to happen. While Joseph was the one who had done this, it was God who put Joseph in this position of power to have all this happen. And throughout this entire story, the big thing that you and I have been seeing and what we've been fo focusing on is God's sovereign hand over His people. And we're going to hear this idea later on from Joseph himself. But we see here a foreshadowing of the big theme here in this chapter. God is in control. They should be at peace instead of shaking in their boots at the fact that this Egyptian official is having them over for dinner. God is in control. And if this statement about God putting treasure in their sacks didn't calm them, you have to think that they're seeing Simeon at least gave them a little bit of hope. They've let our one brother out. If they were going to lock you up, they probably would have not let Simeon out of captivity. And so all of this is set up. We, we read the story there, and we see that they're well taken care of. You would like to think that them getting cleaned up, them taking care of their donkeys, would calm them down. But you know how you and I would probably feel. Uh, they're just making me feel better here. They're just fattening me for the slaughter. They're making me feel better. They're going to clean me up, wash my feet, feed me, and then make me a slave. That's how my life works, right? That's how we would probably approach it. I'm guessing there was a rather large range of emotions in the brothers. Lots of thoughts going through their heads as they waited for Joseph to arrive. And when he does get there, you have to think they thought this whole thing was even more confusing for them because, once again, he's interested in them and their father. And I mentioned last week how beautiful this story can be. And this is really a beautiful telling, the way Moses talks about Joseph's interactions with all his brothers. He, Joseph doesn't show his hand yet, but we show that he's concerned that Jacob is still alive. And once again, we get a reminder of, of how we ended up here in the first place. Look at what we read here about what the brothers are doing. They prostrate themselves before Joseph. We saw last week that the brothers bowed before him, just as the dreams that Joseph had foretold. 
But now, once again, we're getting a reminder. And who's there this time? Benjamin is there. All 11 brothers bow before Jacob. Or before Joseph. All 11 brothers are there. What God ordained in the dreams of Joseph has come to pass. God's plan is in place. For all the chaos that this would be for this family, God's plan is happening. The dreams of Joseph being over his brothers have come to pass by God's sovereign plan. And just as I said last week, God has not placed them in this place for Joseph to rule over them and be a dictator over them and have them under his thumb. God has placed Joseph over his family to rescue them. That's why this came to pass. And the reason I say this story is beautiful is because not only does that foreshadow Christ saving us, but you also see the drama in this family as we start talking about Benjamin. This is Joseph's younger brother. The brother of the only brother he has from his mother. The mother who died when Benjamin was born. And you can understand why Joseph is overwhelmed here and he has to go somewhere to weep. For all that has happened to Joseph, imagine how he feels as he goes and he just lets the emotions loose. You can understand it. 17 years of suffering and now you're together with all of your brothers. So Joseph composes himself. And as the passage closes up, we see Joseph washing his face. And the sneakiness of Joseph comes through again in how all this plays out. Due to the cultural rules, we read that they couldn't eat together. And so when they get there, they find that they're sitting before Joseph and he has them all sit in birth order. How much fun must have this been, Joseph, for messing with their heads? I don't know if you're like me, but I would have done this too. This would have been awesome. I probably wouldn't have thought of it. I'm not that smart. But, but how awesome is the way he messes with their heads? He has them sit in their birth order. And it says that they looked at each other in amazement. But I'm guessing they were a little bit freaked out as well. A bunch of men of different size and different lengths of hair and beards. And somehow these Egyptians got their birth order right? Okay, this is freaky, right? Maybe you could nail the oldest, and clearly Benjamin's the youngest, but something's up here. And then mix in this statement earlier on by the steward of Joseph's house, house, your God and the God of your father gave you treasure. You know that the brothers are wondering what's going on, and they're curious about what God is doing. So we finish up by seeing that Benjamin gets five times more food than anybody else. Joseph seems to just enjoy poking at the curiosity of his brothers. But perhaps the best part of this whole section of this story is that final sentence. After everything we've seen, as disjointed as this family is, as awful as what's happened to Joseph is, and they drank and were merry with him. This family has been fractured in a terrible way by the actions of the brothers. But but now God has ordained to bring them all back together. And by His sovereign hand, what do we see here? The beginning of reconciliation. Despite all the evil that was done to Joseph, God truly is working all things together for His people. So as we close up today, I have one application. 
And I actually got it from Vacation Bible School this week. So the theme of VBS was monumental, and they took a look at the life of Joseph. Now, on Friday, I did the opening devotion, and so I reviewed the themes for the days with them, and and then I was sharing with them the Friday main point. And it was fun to go through the days because it was a quick refresher for me of what we've been through together uh, through the book of Genesis the last several weeks. And then we got to the theme for Friday, and it was, God is surprising. Now, I loved that. I'd been struggling, honestly, the whole week with what is the application of this passage? What, what do we do with this one? And that simple phrase to sum up this story of Joseph's family coming back together here, and it summed it up for children, it absolutely nails the big point of this chapter. God is surprising. There was no way that the brothers thought that this was Joseph. But God ordained that their brother would be in this position of power to rescue them. And God uses this not only to get them food, to rescue them from death and from this famine, but also to begin to reconcile their fractured family. And so, as we think about this story, we need to remember that God does amazing things in our lives. When things seem beyond resolution, when things seem beyond reconciliation, God is able to do His goodwill. That's what He does. Now, whether this is a struggle that you're having right now, or maybe it's a family conflict that has been festering for years, We need to remember that God is surprising. And as His people, we can trust Him to do His goodwill. Because we have seen that in the life of Joseph. He not only is saving His people, He is bringing them together. He is making them His people and rescuing them that they might continue to be a people for His own possession. And so may we trust God to do His goodwill because our God is surprising. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.